I'm Michaela Bachner, Associate Editor of Strip Till Farmer. Welcome to this episode of the Strip Till Farmer podcast series. I encourage you to subscribe to this series wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribing allows you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. Thanks to TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics for supporting this podcast series. Want to do more in 2022? Now available in convenient planter box application, TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics is proven by Bex 2021 PFR to improve yield by 2.7 bushels per acre in soybeans and 4.6 bushels per acre in corn. It also nets $20,000 more in incremental income with every 1,000 acres planted. To calculate your ROI and purchase TerraSim for only $4.35 per acre, visit newleafsim.com slash 2022. That's newleafsym.com slash 2022. Jerry Hatfield, the retired director of the National Laboratory for Agriculture and the Environment, says farming is not rocket science. Farming, with all of its interactions and inputs, is much more complex than a physics problem. At an event held by Iowa's South Fork Watershed Alliance, Hatfield explained how water, tillage, nutrients, and weather fit into the puzzle that is today's ecological and industrial agriculture system. In today's episode of the Strip Till Farmer podcast, we bring you Hatfield's presentation. You'll hear him share data indicating how strip-till increases soil organic matter, what's an ideal water infiltration rate for soil, his advice on when you should get into carbon markets, and more. I don't know how many briefings I've given on carbon markets, and my one word answer is, if you're thinking about getting into it, don't. It's still too much of a wild game and nobody knows what's going on. Let it settle out and then we'll figure out what the rules of the game are. But right now it's just a little bit unclear as to what's going to happen. The other piece that I decided to do once I retired was that people said, well, you know, besides golf, as Andy said, what are you going to do is really to figure out how to help agriculture. How to help agriculture achieve its true potential and what it can do. And so over the past couple of years, I spent a lot of time looking at this, a lot of time thinking about how we're going to improve agriculture to the point of being able basically to say, you know, there are things that we do that we shouldn't do. There are some things that we ought to try. And then there may be some things we ought to just abandon. You know, and you look at all of this, and I come to realization about, oh, a year ago, that when we talk about, and I've built this concept that I call genetics by environment by management, E by E by M. Basically, management is what you oversee, environment's what you overcome, because genetics is what you're trying to optimize. And in thinking about that, and more and more I worked on it, I came to realize that there's one piece of that management aspect that we need to start thinking about, and that is change. And that becomes the most difficult part. So in the past six months, I've been working with sociologists on how does agriculture adopt change? How does any industry adopt change? And you really begin to think about this, this is probably one of the most difficult pieces that we have in thinking about how do we think about changing behaviors, practices, 
Anything else? And so I'm going to kind of take you through a little bit of this tonight and show you different aspects of going on because I truly believe that we really do need to think more holistically about our problems. We talk about the carbon market, but in reality, I can make you more money by putting carbon into the soil and what it does for your operation that you'll ever get from a carbon market. The other piece of this is that I do not understand why we don't think about agriculture in an ecological context. And that is the fact that agriculture fits in a very large ecosystem. And we tend to think about agriculture in what we produce. But in reality, agriculture is what we produce not only in that field, but what we produce off the field, the whole landscape that's out there. And so we need to be thinking about how do we do agriculture in a much more of an ecological context and the value of agriculture in our ecosystem. That is often considered very radical thinking, but it's the way we're gonna to have to think about it because when that question was asked about the sustainability aspects of what companies want, companies are thinking about sustainability from an entirely different perspective in which agriculture is one sliver of their overall piece. Another little moment of truth is we've interviewed a lot of companies about their sustainability goals. And these are all the companies that had, this was sustainability on the piece, we went through and we asked them about their sustainability goals and everything else, and they all had a list of what their sustainability goals were. And then I asked them, well, what's the path to getting to your sustainability goals? That is yet to be determined. Everybody has done sustainability as a major goal out there but is yet to figure out the path to get there. And that's where I really began to think about how do we begin to look at agriculture from a different perspective? How do we begin to put it into this ecological, industrial complex that we think about? And so we really began to look at this overall aspect of agriculture, what we can do, what we can't do, what our opportunities are. And I do not believe that agriculture is at any better position right now than it has been to be able to really capture in a lot of different pieces and a lot of different ways that are going on. The carbon markets are basically chatter, in my opinion. There are a lot of things, and Jack brought up the idea of nutrient density. I think the quality of food, the, the food safety issues, the food security issues, all those other things are out there. And we need to be thinking of how do we begin to convince the public that here is the role that agriculture plays and why you depend on it. And so there's a lot of different pieces that are along that way. We'll talk a little bit about water quality, tillage, nutrients, weather, all those other things that are going on in that piece of the puzzle. We deal in complex systems. Complex systems require innovative approaches. We've got to move past main effects. Most of the time in agriculture, we deal in main effects. We talk about the effect of nutrients. We talk about the effects of pesticides. We talk about the effects of tillage. We talk about genetics. But we don't really realize that it's a complex set of interactions. Some of you have heard me say that farming is not rocket science. Farming is much more complex. What's it take for rocket science? What's it take to launch a rocket in the air? You need a payload, you need a force of gravity, and you figure out how much thrust you take to overcome that. It's a, it's a physics problem. Pure and simple. Farming is like solving six or seven simultaneous differential equations. And if you ever took math, higher level math in there, is that most people get really kind of stumbled that 
two, maybe three different equations. But farming is complex. We got to look at all these different interactions that are going on, the environmental imports, the trade-offs in a lot of this. We're talking about water quality. We talk about soil health. We talk about all these other things. We talk about air quality, all these issues on greenhouse gases and everything else, all these different aspects. And all these solutions are going to be based on interactions among soils, weather, and management. Soils is what you have. Weather you can't control. Management is what you can begin to do all of this. But what management solution works the best every year is often weather dependent. So it's not a simple solution in all these different pieces that go on. I'm going to start off with tillage practices and all of this and I'm getting the background on this. And intensive tillage is basically your number one robber of soil carbon out of the soil. Every time we till we put carbon back into the atmosphere. You want proof of that? Look how they build a roadbed. What's the biggest implement you see when they build a roadbed? Is that big 30-inch disc behind a four-wheel drive tractor, and they drive it back and forth and back and forth, basically taking structure out of the soil. So intensive tillage in there, we take the carbon out of there, we, and we take out our water storage capacity, we decrease infiltration, and then we decrease the water supply that increases the potential for nitrogen leaching. There is a linkage between all of these aspects that we do and water quality. This is the interactions that we begin to think about all these different ways that are going on. If we think about this, and this is a long-term study that we had because we've actually been in the Walnut Creek watershed longer than we've been in the uh, South Fork of the Walnut, South Fork watershed. We've been there since 1992, and we have the longest record of, of carbon fluxes over corn and soybean systems that exist in the world. And so we did an analysis all after about 2018, uh, looking at the carbon balance of corn, soybeans, uh, and native prairie, because we also have the Neil Smith uh, area is committed as well with carbon fluxes. So we know what's going on in the native prairie system as well. But what we see in the bottom line in all those graphs is that our typical corn soybean system under conventional tillage loses about a thousand pounds of carbon per acre per year. Corn accrues a little bit, soybeans loses a whole lot, but in the essence, we're always losing carbon out of it. If you farm corn, years have lost 20 tons of carbon out of the soil. And we see that in terms of all these different dynamics that are going on from that standpoint. So we see all this different piece. The good news is we took another field after all of these data and we put it back and we switched it over from conventional to a no-till cover crop system. And within the first year, we went from a negative carbon balance to a positive carbon balance of 300 pounds. And we've continued to change that in the first year. We've continued to add carbon more and more each year. We see these different dynamics that are going on, so we can reverse this very, very quickly because we take tillage out of the system, we see this. Another piece of this is we have one of these instruments that measures carbon and it's mounted on the AT&T tower that's on Highway 17, uh, and it oversees all of that valley below that. And so after harvest, it's really quite interesting because the carbon dynamics, the carbon in the atmosphere kind of pools out at about 400 parts per million until everybody starts tilling. <laughs> and then the carbon values in that just go off the chart. They're, the order of maybe 600 parts per million in the atmospheric average. And if you back calculate, that means that we've lost about every bit of carbon 
that was taken up that whole year in all the tillage that we do in the fall. So it's pretty remarkable in terms of the dynamics that are going on. Now, if you're in intensive tillage, we can chat, but you know, they're, you're continually destroying your base uh, as you go through this. Here's the other piece of this. This is the, the long-term data from the Sanborn plots and the Morrill plots, the Sanborn plots in Missouri and the Morrill plots in Illinois. They've been in a corn, oats, hay rotation, corn, oats rotation, and a corn, soybean rotation from 54 onward, and then continuous corn. And this is just data from the into the 1980s. Uh, we're trying to get the Sanborn plot to go through and redo a sampling uh, again. We talked to them about doing that to see where they're at and leveling it off. But you look at that continuous corn, is that from where it was at the beginning until the 1970s, they lost 70% of their Illinois, the moral plots are only lost about 60%. So we see these changes that are going on, all these different dynamics from that standpoint. This intensive tailage is doing reducing that carbon. It leads to more instability of the aggregates of the soil surface. It basically limits that infiltration of precipitation because of lack of soil aggregates and exposure to direct impact rainfall. So we see all these different dynamics that are going on in these systems as well. Here's just another example of why organic matter pays. This is a field that's out by Dana, uh, and it's a field that we've observed for a long time. We were doing, we do a lot of remote sensing work. Uh, that picture on the left is uh, an image that was taken uh, with one particular index in August. You can see how uniform that field was, except for the waterways. That picture on the right is taken three weeks later. Uh, because we had no rain for three weeks, and you see all that leaf drop that's going on. That's all you're picking up with that image. We see all this disappearance of what's going on. Uh, that green area uh, yielded 65 bushels, and the yellow area yielded about 25 bushels. So in three weeks, we lost 40 bushels in the acre in a lot of parts of that field just because it didn't rain, and the soil couldn't supply that water. So you see these different dynamics going on. We see these in lots of fields. Across this. The other piece of this, talking back to this field at Williams that we have, is that we went through in 2016 and we did a very intensive grid sampling. We sampled that in 150 foot grids down to four feet across that whole field. And this is both, this is just half of the field. It's 160 acres. There's another 320 acres, to, another 160 to the south of it. But after Two years, we basically doubled the microbial biomass because we reduced the intensity. You can see these rapid changes are going on. So the bottom line is, soil changes more rapidly than we think. We're talking about changing or carbon within that soil. We're talking about changing microbial biomass. We see all these different things. In fact, we've run another experiment lately in which we were changing stable aggregates within 140 days after a cover crop was on there. So we can see the, all these different things that are going on within our soil and all of this. So we begin to see the changes that are out there. So here's the current state of our soils across the Midwest, not just Iowa, but across the Midwest, is that we've made them very vulnerable to extreme weather. We've made them very vulnerable to variable weather that's out there. We've made them dependent on external nutrient supply because we've taken the organic matter out, we've taken the water out, we've made them dependent on this, and so the functionality of soil is we really want them, that soil to hold the plant up and we'll supply everything else. 
So we really got to think about how we're going to reverse this trend in terms of this. And so basically we've just made soils immediately with plants. And with the current price of nitrogen fertilizer, that might gain different attention of how we think about managing our systems as we go forward. I'm going to take you through a, a little experiment uh, that we've done, and this is with, uh, with Wayne uh, Fredericks up in Mitchell County. Uh, Wayne and I have been working together for a number of years. Uh, that red star is about where he's at in Mitchell County. As Wayne explains, he and I do a lot of tag team presentations uh, on all of this. Um, you know, Wayne says, you know, I'm one county short of the tundra. Uh, you know, so, <laughs> you know, you think about this uh, and all of these different pieces we're seeing, uh, all of this. It's an area of the state in which no-till, strip-till, cover crops isn't supposed to work because it's too cold and it's too wet. You know, you're really in a, in a tropical area compared to Mitchell County. You know, so a little bit worse. But anyway, 1992, he went over to no-till soybeans uh, because weather prevented him from getting any tillage done. He'd been a full-width tillage up till then. Because it froze up, he couldn't get any of that fall tillage, so he went to no-till. It worked so well, he never goes back. It worked so well, he switched over to strip-till corn in 2002 uh, based on the success of no-till beans and looking at the, all the aspects that are going on. Yeah, there's a strip-till system for corn and all of this. Uh, this was before he fired putting cover crops into that system. Now all the, the beans, as you see, are all planted green uh, and everything. So everything is just going through and we're just planting green in it and then terminating it afterwards. And that's working so well in terms of this aspect. Because I wonder why I didn't do that sooner in terms of this process. So, I'm not going to belabor some of this, but what I do want to share some pieces with you because here's three fields uh, in which they've measured the organic matter starting in 1984, uh, going on to 2015. Uh, you can see those changes in that uh, organic matter. That 2.3 is now up to 4.3. The 3.3 is up to 6.1. There's where we started. Uh, the whole aspects of improving that and actually I have all of this organic matter data across all the fields that we worked in. We've seen that same increase in terms of organic matter content because we reduced the tillage uh, aspects and then we've added the cover crops into it as well. There's been a two and a half percent increase so that roughly when I figured out it's roughly about 900 to 1,000 pounds of carbon going back in every year uh, to get that level of rise of organic matter. Uh, the fence rows uh, was sampled in 2016 just for curiosity's sake uh, to see what the potential was. Fence rows around that area are somewhere between 6 to 9.5%. Uh, you can see that one field in 6 uh, isn't getting too far away from, from where it was originally uh, in all of this because we're interested in what the plateau is. You know, that's a graph that's out there and we see that aspect. But that's. That's not what excites me about this data set. Uh, this data set is, uh, that we got from Wayne is 10 fields, 18 years of yield monitor data uh, across all those different fields. I do make another point in terms of where this organic matter has gone to. Uh, it's looking at the available water holding capacity uh, just a simple graph in there. That lower line is a permanent wilting point. That's the point at which water can no longer be extracted by a plant out of that soil. 
uh, the upper line is still capacity. Uh, anything above that just drains out. So that space in between is what the plant has available to it. Uh, you know, if we reduce organic matter, reduce water holding capacity, but if we improve it, we increase it. Uh, and if we take and improve the organic matter content from two to 4% on the silvery loam soil, what you see is you've got about five more days of available water during the grain filling period. At five more days in which you don't have stress can be a lot of advantages to see these different aspects that are going on. So as we've improved the organic matter on his field, we've improved the water holding capacity, we've improved the water storage capacity, a number of different things that are out there. The other piece of this is that those stable aggregates that we've created uh, allows that continual infiltration rates. If you've got an unstable aggregate, as soon as rain drops in, it hits it, dissolves, that silt moves down through, it clogs up all the pores, just like uh, a drainage pipe that doesn't have uh, free flowing in it. So we, we get infiltration rates that are pretty low. In fact, across the Midwest, it's not unusual to have infiltration rates that are less than one inch per hour and sometimes half inch per hour. So if you get a half inch infiltration rate and you get a one inch rain in an hour, simple math tells you you lost a half inch. And that's where we see a lot of our runoff. And we see a lot of erosion pieces going on. So if you've got a stable aggregate, a stable aggregate withstands that raindrop energy. It doesn't dissolve. It allows that infiltration rate to continue. Before we get back to the conversation, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Terrasym by New Leaf Symbiotics, for supporting the Strip-Till Farmer podcast series. Want to do more in 2022? Now available in convenient planter box application, TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics is proven by Beck's 2021 PFR to improve yield by 2.7 bushels per acre in soybeans and 4.6 bushels per acre in corn. It also nets $20,000 more in incremental income with every 1,000 acres planted. To calculate your ROI and purchase TerraSim for only $4.35 per acre, visit newleafsim.com slash 2022. That's newleafsym.com slash 2022. Now here's Jerry Hatfield again, talking about how many inches of water per hour is a good infiltration rate. I'm going to talk about Lauren now because I was having a conversation with Rick Clark out of Indiana about uh, three or four weeks ago and Rick and I were talking about his operations and the things he's made and changes he's seen in soil and everything and he said well you know our infiltration rates on our farm we measured them this late fall and they were at 12 inches per hour uh, on our fields. Well, I happened to be talking to Lauren about three or four days later because he and I were on a panel together and we were prepping for it. And I said, so Lauren, Rick was telling me his infiltration rates were about 12 inches per hour. And Lauren says, that's nothing because Lauren says his infiltration rates that they just measured were 20 inches per hour. Yeah. You think about this, <laughs> in terms of 20 inches per hour, you know, we can handle just about any storm that's out there. So now I've come to the conclusion that if we can get people interested in soil health, we won't be bragging about yields. We'll be 
bagging about infiltration rates that you get on your soil out there. And so we just have to come up with some rules about how it's measured and everything. But I think it's a pretty good metric to say, you know, 20 inches per hour in terms of infiltration is a phenomenal rate. 12 inches per hour is a phenomenal rate. Four inches per hour is a pretty good rate as well. But you think about these dynamics that are going on and how we've changed our soil and the capacity that we have to put things out there. You think about this residue cover that's out there and the three pieces of that that are going on. First, that residue protects it against raindrop energy, so it allows that infiltration rate to continue. We reduce soil water evaporation. We don't often think about that, but that residue layer prevents that water from evaporating back to the atmosphere, and so we can make use of it as well. And then the third piece we found when we dig in that soil underneath of that is that those roots of that crop are very near the surface. And so we can take advantage of light rainfalls. That half inch rainfall doesn't have to penetrate very far the so root intercepts it. So we see these different dynamics that are going on as well. So there's, and this occurs the first year. As soon as you have that residue layer out there, you see all these impacts. So it's not something we have to wait on. So the impacts of, rain, of Wayne's data is that we began to see as we change the system and we analyzed his yield monitor data by soil type within the 10 fields. So it took us a long time to analyze that data. But what we found is that as we were improving organic matter, we were changing the yield distributions in that. We took all the low yielding spots of each soil type out. And so what we were doing is basically taking all those low yielding parts of the field out, making them more profitable, making them more advantageous in terms of the inputs that we're using and everything else. And, and we were getting tighter and tighter around the mean, plus there's less variation among the years. So across those 10 fields, we, we started tightening down around all that. So we were making them more resilient. We're taking and making them more profitable. The other piece that we saw in this aspect, because I went back and looked at Mitchell County, because here's your trivia for the night, the, the top two insurance claims across the Midwest are excessive moisture and drought. That accounts for almost 60% of the crop insurance claims. Both of those can be handled by improving the soil. We take care of the excessive moisture part, we can take care of the drought part. And so you look at all this in terms of the debt. I've been pushing RMA to do what you asked Secretary Nag, is that if you're in conservation practices, you're less risky and you don't have a reduction in premium. And I think we're pretty close to being able to get the actual RMA to be able to do that. I discovered one truth about the RMA and any insurance company, is you can give them an, an actuarial table that will insure anything. <laughs> 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 they just need to know the, the potential for profit and loss and risk from their perspective. But what we found in looking at, at Mitchell County was that yields are negatively correlated with April and May rainfall. The more rain in April and May, the lower the average county yield. We delayed planning, we got all the stress going on, and it's pretty remarkable because then we ran it across the Midwest and we see the same thing. These wet springs are costing us yield a lot of different aspects that are out there. But where you begin to see this, and we looked at Wayne's data over the past five years, is that 
that correlation no longer exists because with the cover crops and the, and the profitability he has, he's able to plant on time and see all these different aspects that are going on. Yields positively correlate with the July and September rainfall. The more it rains in July and September, the higher the average county yield. That's our highest water use period that's out there. Uh, we need the water, and everybody knows this. There's nothing better than a good August rainfall. <laughs> you know, we, we don't use the word million dollar rain for nothing uh, because that's really where it pays because that's the, the highest water use period. Uh, it's the lowest precipitation period that we have. It's the most variable period that we have. And we're relying on what's stored in the soil water. So we see all this aspect. We see an alleviation among years and a lot of these different pieces. So what we see is yield stability across yields. We see less year variation among years. Uh, we see increased water use efficiency. We come back and look at this data in terms of water use efficiency. You've increased water use efficiency on that farm by about 40% uh, to 50% on corn and soybeans both. So we're making better use of every drop of water that falls uh, on that crop as well. And so we broke that correlation. But here's our opportunities that, that we need to write thinking about is that we need to change our management system to increase water storage with translation to production. Production is really related to how much water we put through that crop. We can increase resilience on our cropping systems uh, to weather variation. We see a lot of this as we go along. You see a much tighter distribution around that long-term mean uh, and everything. And looking at this, long-term no-till, uh, as I've looked at this, your increase in yields is, is basically about 20% higher than the average county trajectory on yields because you're taking and making advantage of this uh, aspect of the water that's out there. And you can increase production of water quality at the same time because you're making more efficient use of the nutrients, you're making more efficient use of all this, not only runoff and all of this. Wayne has not changed nitrogen rates throughout that whole period. So his nitrogen use efficiency has gone up as well. So here's some strip-till observations because I've spent a lot of time on strip-till. Uh, corn soybean yields have the highest yield that we've looked at across these systems. They have the lowest variation in years. We ran an experiment across five locations of, in the state of Iowa with strip-till for three years, finding that that's the aspect. It's really due to early season vigor. Uh, really like strip-till for the fact that everything emerges at the same time. Uh, you can do emergence counts in one day, uh, go into conventional tillage. Sometimes we do an emergence count for five to six days uh, as they each come up individually. Uh, you get deeper root growth early in the season. We've, we've measured that as well. It's the zone where the most effective water and gas exchange is going on. And, and the aspect that we don't talk about enough is the oxygen content. We're getting that oxygen down. That's where the vigor is coming from in terms of this. And so we more, see more a uniform plant production across years. But here's our challenge. Well, your challenge. My job is to deliver the challenge and run away. So uh, <laughs> we need to understand the linkage between management practices and genetics. I think we need to really drill down and look at these interactions. Where do we see some of this? How many people were surprised at the corn yields that we got this year? I think we, you know, a lot of this is genetics, a lot of this is timing of, of events and everything else. 
we need to be starting to look at even more at conducting on-farm experimentation. There's an international group that I belong to called On-Farm Experimentation, OFB, uh, that really spends a lot of time thinking about how we conduct on-farm experiments more effectively. Uh, and the leaders in this are not the United States. They're Europe and Australia. Uh, and a lot of these different pieces that are going on. So it's a pretty fascinating conversation to have. It's also a bugger to do a Zoom call between around the globe in terms of this uh, in these dynamics as well. The other piece is that we need to start thinking about these multiple endpoints that include all of our ecosystem services. We think about production, but we don't think about environmental quality and profitability as closely as we should at times. We're going to have to start thinking at a different aspect. And so here's reality. I came up with a diagram that nobody could take apart. Because what this is, some people look at that and say, well, that's a Mickey Mouse diagram. Um, you know, But it really has got the four pieces of, of the ecosystem services. And Secretary Nag talked about the fact that people are now looking and paying for ecosystem services and coming down. And that's as controversial as, as carbon markets right now. But uh, we think about provisioning uh, in that upper quadrant. That's basically what we produce, and that's how we've often thought about agriculture. But we've got the other piece of this in terms of uh, greenhouse gases and water quality. And, and I really believe we we're close to getting this. There's a very exciting thing that's happening on Wall Street these days. And there's now groups that are forming what they call natural resource asset companies. And they're looking at how they're thinking about putting a value on ecosystem services. Their estimated economic impact last week was in excess of $4 trillion. Don't tell me that there won't be money in this because the groups that are thinking about that have some very deep pockets. And so we're trying to figure out how to position agriculture to take advantage of that. The other piece of this is supporting that space of your pollinator habitat and trying to figure out how can we get pollinator habitat paid for as part of an ecosystem service and value that because customers are working on that piece. And then the cultural, how do you really view that landscape from a different perspective? Water quality, the societal benefits, and everything else. At this point of his presentation, Hatfield took questions from the audience. The first question was if there have been experiments about how changing carbon levels in the atmosphere are affecting crops. Oh yeah. <laughs> there, there have been tons of experiments on rainy zine carbon uh, uh, in the atmosphere. Uh, it works really well on soybean. People run carbon levels. In fact, we've even run some of our own up to about seven, 800 parts per million. That's where the estimated might be by 2100. But you and I aren't going to care about that. Um, but, uh, you know, that you get a doubling of, of plant growth uh, in that aspect, not so much on corn. I think the other piece with the, with the wildfires was probably much more of a diffuse light. Uh, it dense, penetrates through the canopy differently than does direct light uh, in all of this. You know, a lot of these different pieces, and I haven't analyzed all the, the phenomena going on this year uh, in terms of why we got some of the yields that we got. Uh, I think some of it is a testimony to the genetics that we have. They're, they're getting a lot more resilient. Uh, I mean, if you look at all these different pieces, I think that there are some aspects of, of uh, crops being able to withstand stress 
uh, a lot differently than they did before. Uh, it's a phenomenal piece of this. I think it is a testimony to, to all the different things that are going on. Environments is part of this. Uh, we didn't suffer from an abundance of rainfall this year, so we, uh, but we did have some timely rains at times. To follow up, the audience asked how lowering atmospheric carbon dioxide would impact yields. You know, we're at 400 parts per million right now, uh, 410 something in that area. Uh, if we can take carbon, if we take carbon dioxide levels down, I don't. I think the bigger pieces will be if we change nitrous oxide, we change some of the dust dynamics and all of this. Uh, I don't think we're going to reduce carbon levels enough that's going to impact productivity. Because corn that kind of saturates out of 290 parts per million, because uh, we've seen that as we run experiments. Uh, we're never going to lower the, the levels right now uh, to, that, to that extent anyway. So I wouldn't worry about corn production. Uh, bean production, we're plenty high enough right now that uh, we won't see an impact, at least in the near future. And finally, how do cover crops impact soil carbon? Yeah, so we put the cover crops into that, we see another bump going on. Uh, you look at some of the work that Gabe Brown has done in North Dakota, South Dakota, is that when he added the mixtures of cover crops, he really took his organic matter levels up. Oh, even more. Even more. Think about cover crops analogous to a retirement account. Continually putting carbon into the soil without reducing tillage, you're not taking it out. You go to diversifying your portfolio <laughs> where you just start doing some of the mixtures and everything else with diversity and you, and you don't pay much attention to it. That's what my financial advisor says, don't look at it every day. But, you know, but we, we did see an increase in, and uh, we see a, a and in fact, here's the, the story from 2021. Wayne called me as he finished harvesting his one field because he has one field that has a lot of sandy spots in it, really poor areas and everything else. And he called me and he says, you know, we've been talking about all the variation or reduction of variation. He says, I couldn't even find those sandy spots this fall. And it was running 220, 230 across the whole field. So he said, you know, this is really beginning to fill in where we think. Uh, it's going and everything. So that was a uh, testimony. I haven't seen the yield monitor data on yet, but visual observation. Did he have just rye? Or did he's he have he's still just running rye. Okay. I haven't got him to diversify it. Thanks to Jerry Hatfield and the South Fork Watershed Alliance for today's conversation. Let me know what you thought about this episode by emailing me at mpaulkner at lessetermedia.com or calling me at 262-777-2441. If you're looking for more podcasts about strip-till, visit striptillfarmer.com slash podcasts or check out our episode library wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, many thanks to TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics for helping to make this Strip-Till podcast series possible. From all of us here at Strip-Till Farmer, I'm Michaela Plockner. Thanks for listening. <laughs>